for the benefit of those of you who are here for the first time or those of you who are watching, what we're doing in this class is considering what we would describe as fundamental truths, very basic uh, New Testament doctrinal points and things that really do form the foundation of who we are as God's people. And if you're going to think about the most basic fundamental truths, you have to begin with the existence of God. And we talked about various reasons why we have to believe that there is a God and how that belief is rational and it stands upon evidence. And then after you've established the idea of God, you move forward to the concept that Jesus of Nazareth, who was a real historical character, is in fact the Christ, the Messiah. And once you can show that Jesus is the Messiah, then you consider in detail the claims that he makes and realize that only he could fulfill those claims. And that ties in very closely with the third fundamental pillar, which is the concept of the inspiration of the Bible. And so if God exists, and if Jesus is the Son of God, and if the Bible is the Word of God, then you and I have the obligation to follow the Bible, to do what it says. Not to argue with God, or to try to shorten what He has for us, but to do what He tells us to do. And one of the areas that that becomes very, very important is with regard to what Scripture says about the church. And so over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the church, what the church is, uh, in some cases what it's not. And then as we developed the idea, we started talking about the concept of worship. And so in previous lessons, we've looked at various things that worship involves, the idea of praise, the idea of adoration, the idea of thanksgiving, and all of those are components that make New Testament worship acceptable to God. But what I want you to see tonight is that this worship that God is calling us to do is not something that is easy. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think worship, and I have already told you this several times, uh, is one of the most difficult things that we possibly can do. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the activities that you do, you do without giving much thought to them, don't you? You become accustomed to something so much so that you don't really think about what it is that you're doing. Uh, take, for example, driving a car. Now, if you're driving a car that's not yours, you're probably very well aware of where are those windshield wipers? Or are these lights on? Or do I need to do something to adjust them? Or something like that. You drive your car, you know all that automatically, don't you? You just automatically reach for whatever it is. Now, the problem that you run into, perhaps like I do, is that when I'm driving my truck, that's one thing. And then I'm driving Beverly's van, that's quite another. So sometimes I'm turning on the windshield wipers by turning the turn signal. Uh, and that, that sort of thing happens too. But there's some things that we do that are automatic. We don't think about them. We just do them. Now, with that said, that can be a very detrimental thing when it comes to worship. Because the actions that we engage in in worship are as repetitive as driving a car. And so we come to the church building on Sunday morning, and most of you, pre-COVID that is, sat in the same pew, and you would, you know, at that point, 
oftentimes very easy to put your mind in neutral. Song leader leads the song we sing. Now, what songs did we sing? It's a different thing, right? Uh, it's easy to sing notes. It's a different sort of thing to focus on the words that are being spoken through the song. And we are to teach and admonish one another as we sing, aren't we? So uh, that becomes a challenge for us. And praying becomes a challenge, doesn't it? The person is leading the prayer. But sometimes our mind dwells for a brief bit on that prayer and then it fleets to something else. It's very hard to focus on the words that are being spoken. Same thing's true with when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Even if we're well aware of the purpose of the Lord's Supper, it's awfully easy to think about something else that's going on or that's gone on or that I want to go on or what's going on around me. Uh, someone sitting here rattling some piece of paper. Why don't they just open that candy and get it over with? Uh, I, can, I can tell you uh, some things. By the way, I, I don't think that you're guilty of this. And if you are, stop. Uh, but I have seen things when I've been preaching that I should have just stopped and said, hey, yeah, I can see you and so can everybody else around you. Uh, but, you know, I didn't. I, was, I tried to be kind. Um, but those sorts of things distract us, don't they? And, you know, I know when I'm preaching that it's, it's very easy for you to become distracted. As a matter of fact, most of the time I can tell. Now, somebody in the room is sitting there thinking, you, don't tell, you can't tell what I'm doing right now. And I, I get that, right? But uh, with most of you, one of the reasons why I like eye contact so much is I can usually tell if you're tracking with me. Uh, and I can usually tell if you're getting what I'm saying or sometimes if you're not getting what I'm saying. Okay? Those sorts of things are important. But it's so easy for the train to go off the tracks. And I know that because it happens to me. I'm listening to somebody else preach, and he's dealing with a passage. I'm thinking in my mind, I don't think I would use this passage that way. Or maybe I would structure the outline this way. Or, or maybe this would be my first point instead of that. Or, you know, there's another verse that I think I'd probably use here instead. All those things are happening. And then, of course, because you have the Internet in the palm of your hand, anytime somebody tells a story and you go, oh, I'm not sure that's exactly right, you're fact-checking me as I'm speaking. You know, and those are the sorts of things that you didn't have to worry about 10 years ago, but now they're happening all the time, right? Every fact has to be exactly right. It has to fit in the exact order. All of that, okay? I say that to simply illustrate to you that worship is not easy because we are so distracted. And then, to be quite honest, our giving has almost been relegated to something that's not even worship. It's just an action that we engage in. And I think we ought to think more seriously about giving as an act of worship. What does it mean? Well, it's, it's the same sort of thing that people in the Old Testament were doing when they were bringing their sacrifices to God. That was a very solemn event. It was a moment in which you're sharing with God what He's given to you. And I think we ought to look at it that way. But distraction isn't the real reason that I think worship is so difficult, although I do think distraction really does cause all kinds of problems for us. The real reason is that worship involves two aspects. And John 4, 23 and 24 talks about that, right? Jesus has, has gone to 
the woman at the well in Samaria, and all of these things in her background are being discussed, and she realizes that he is more than just a man. And so she brings one question up to him that I find fascinating. She says, you know, you Jews say that Jerusalem is where you ought to worship. But our fathers say that we ought to worship on this mountain. She was probably pointing at Mount Gerizim, which was very, very close there. And her issue is, is this, who's right? Where should we worship? And Jesus responds to that. And he doesn't dismiss her question, but it reminds me that sometimes the questions that, that are asked aren't really the questions that need to be answered. And so he takes her in the direction that she needs to go. Watch what he does. John 4, 23 and 24, and you go back to 22 where you find him really, um, or 21 rather, where he's really starting to answer her question. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. In other words, there's going to be a point in time when your question is not going to matter. It's going to be irrelevant. You know, or you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. There, there's the answer to her question. The Jews are right about this. Jerusalem is the place for worship. But then he adds, verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is... When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. So ultimately, worship is not going to be about where you are, but about what you are doing and how you're doing it. Now, here's the one caution that I'll give you about these verses. We have made a huge deal out of the idea that we ought to worship God in the right way with the right attitude. And it is absolutely true that we ought to worship God in the right way and in the right, with the right attitude. But that's not what John 4.24 is saying. And the reason I know that is because of what verse 24 says at the very beginning. It begins and it says, God is what? Spirit. Does that mean God is an attitude? What does it mean? He is a spiritual being. Okay? God is spirit. And then watch what John does. Or writing, recording Jesus' words, of course. And those who worship him must worship in what? Spirit and truth. If God is a spiritual being, when you worship God, guess what you have to use to worship Him? You have to use your spirit. And you have to do it in the right way. Now, the right way is the way that He is prescribed. But the spirit is your essence, your being, which tells me this. When I sing, I better not just be an autopilot. Just going through the motions. Or when we're praying, I shouldn't just close my eyes and... Boy, I'm sleepy. Uh, by the way, Wednesday night's the worst. And I, you know, don't think that I don't realize that too. Uh, you've, you've had a long day at work. And if it's cold outside and it's warm in here and you come in here and these chairs are comfortable and you sit down and boy, you know, easy, easy, easy to let our minds just drift off. Uh, 
the idea is that worship involves both doing the right things, but it involves complete focus too. Now, uh, we'll talk perhaps later about some things that will help us to be better focused when we worship, because I think that's important. But there's a little bit of background information uh, on worship, the words that are used in Scripture that I want to share with you before we get into the actual acts of worship that we read about in the New Testament. One of the things that I think is important to note is that different words are used in both the Old Testament and the New Testament to describe worship. And the Old Testament word that is the most frequently used uh, is the word in the Hebrew would be pronounced shakah, and it literally means to bow down. And that's not surprising to us because what did people do in the Old Testament when they worshipped? They would get on the ground, right? And they would bow down. And it was not just a figurative sort of thing. This was a literal sort of thing, wasn't it? When they're worshipping, they are bowing down, right? Now, when you come down to the New Testament, you find that the, the New Testament word that's most frequently translated as worship is proskuneo. And it comes from a word, uh, a cognate word, which means to kiss. And it's, uh, the idea is like someone who is kissing the hand toward. Okay? Uh, and in that sense, it's the idea of pronouncing a blessing upon. You know, and when we're praising God, we're, we're doing that, aren't we? We're saying, God, you're worthy of our adoration. You think of it in those sorts of terms. Um, and, and it... It literally means, proskuneo literally means to prostrate, one, prostrate oneself uh, or to do obeisance on the ground. It's, it's the idea of getting down. Okay, now what's, what's fascinating to me about both of these words, you, you see the idea of literally getting on the ground or, or kissing one's hand toward. Both of these words are talking about outward actions, right? And so the word worship is, is utilizing terms that are of an outward nature, but doesn't worship require inward action too? So when we're worshiping God properly, we're not just uh, bowing down outwardly and we're not just kissing. Uh, we are, we're bowing down on the inside and we're offering praise and adoration on the inside as well. It's sort of like the little boy who, who got in trouble and his teacher was, was upset with his behavior. And so she told him, you're going to sit in that seat and you're not going to get up the rest of the day. And he looked at her and he said, I'm going to sit down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. And that's the same sort of thing that happens with worship, isn't it? Because you can go through the motions. I mean, you can come to church and you can sing and you can bow your head reverently in prayer and you can eat the emblems of the Lord's Supper and you can even give financially and you can act like you're listening while the preacher's talking and not worship for a single moment. Do you realize that? Because worship demands involvement both of physical and mental focus. That's a big, big deal. So true worship doesn't occur simply because we bow or simply because we kiss. Uh, true worship uh, engages both the body and the soul. Now, in applying that, 
let's let's start tonight and then move forward over the next few weeks thinking about the different aspects of worship and then we'll probably talk about some things that will be helpful to us uh, to to maybe force ourselves to focus when it's very easy not to um, and I want to start with the Lord's Supper so let's let's think about the Lord's Supper for a few minutes and some questions that that might help us to to further this discussion uh, number one what is the Lord's Supper well, before you turn to Matthew 26, let's talk about that question. What is the Lord's Supper? All right, it is a memorial. Now, it is a memorial that remembers something that is very specific. Memorials usually do that, don't they? Um, I've heard it said, and I think... There's no ill intent when this is being said. But I've heard people try to argue that the Lord's Supper is about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's not accurate. The Lord's Supper is not about the resurrection of Jesus. The Lord's Supper is about the death of Jesus. Now, there are other things that remind us of the resurrection of Jesus on a regular basis. Not the least of which is the fact that we're worshiping on Sunday rather than on Saturday. Why are we worshiping on Sunday? That's the day he arose. Very early on the first day of the week. The disciples came to the tomb and guess what? It was empty. Jesus rose from the dead. But that's not the only reason we worship on the first day of the week. We worship on the first day of the week because that's also the day the church began. You may not realize this. By the way, what day did the church begin on? Day of Pentecost. Okay. And we know that because in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, the text is very clear when it says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. So it was absolutely the day of Pentecost when the events in Acts chapter 2 transpired. Okay, well what day did Pentecost always start on? Well, it was 50 days after the last Sabbath of, of Passover, after the high Sabbath of Passover. Well, if you had 49 days to that, you come up with a Saturday. You add 50 days to that, guess what you get? You get a Sunday. So what day is the day of Pentecost? The day of Pentecost starts on Sunday. All right? So we know Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday. We know the church began on Sunday. And guess what else we know? We know the early Christians met on Sunday, don't we? On the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. So, um, there are various reasons why we know that we're worshiping on the first day of the week. And the first day of the week is a commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus. Okay? Baptism also is a commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus. Do you realize that? We are baptized into his death, but what happens after that? We are raised to walk in newness of life. We are united with him in his death so that we can be united with him in the resurrection. Romans chapter 6. So there are things that point to the resurrection. We're not trying to diminish or minimize the idea of thinking about the resurrection of Christ. But the Lord's Supper is all about his death. It is about what he has done in putting himself in our place on the cross. Okay? So let's think about this memorial for just a minute. First, by looking back at what he did when he instituted the memorial. 
Okay, so let's look. Matthew 26 in your Bibles. And what was going on in Matthew 26? Do you remember? Okay, they're at the Passover feast. And if you look at uh, the other gospel accounts, Luke's in particular, Luke gives us some details that Matthew does not about the parts of the meal that were taking place and when all of this was happening. Uh, you get a very clear idea that they're sitting at the table and the Passover feast has taken place. And the Passover feast was a memorial to remember what? Okay. The destroyer in the Old Testament, right? Tenth plague. You remember? Uh, the families, if they had wiped the blood across their door frames, uh, the, the destroyer passes over. He does not take the firstborn in that family. If they did not do that, everybody that didn't mark the doorpost with blood, the uh, destroyer stops and takes the firstborn. It's a pretty fitting thing to be observing on the same night that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, isn't it? Because that Passover was looking forward to what Jesus was going to do and the blood that he shed. And there's a reason why all throughout the New Testament various hints are applied to Jesus and they tie him to that Passover deliverance, right? John, for example, sees him coming in John 1 and verse 29 and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, that's a pretty interesting description of Jesus. It's the idea of him being the sacrificial lamb for all of the world. He's the savior, if you will. His blood is necessary in cleansing. So uh, that's the background of what's happening in Matthew 26. And then look at verses 26 through 30. He says, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it. Now, by the way, this isn't just any bread. We had a discussion at, at, at breakfast. We were with my parents this morning up in Tennessee. Had a discussion at breakfast about the kind of bread that everybody thought was the best kind of bread. I voted for biscuits, by the way. Um, you know, this is not just pick your favorite kind of bread. Um, if, if it was, I would add in fried pies. I like those better. Uh, but you know, that's not what this is. We know something very specific about this kind of bread because it was Passover. Okay, the bread they would have been eating at Passover would have of necessity been unleavened bread. And the reason we know that is because for the Passover meal to be observed, all of the leaven had to be put out of the house. They couldn't observe the Passover and have leaven in the house. So if they're eating bread, it has to be unleavened bread. Which is why when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we have unleavened bread. Okay, um, so he takes the bread... And he blesses it and breaks it and says, Take, eat, this is my body. What does the bread represent then? His body, right? But what does that mean? When you take the Lord's Supper and, and you're thinking about the bread, what are you thinking about? Okay, there is, there's a sacrificial nature in it. But I think there's a reason why there are two emblems in the Lord's Supper, right? And the other emblem is the cup, which represents what? Blood. 
which is also a part of the sacrifice. What else? Yeah, what he went through. One of the things that really, to me, is just a fascinating thing to consider. And I, I, think, I, I think I think about this, I contemplate this every time I take the Lord's Supper. Is the very fact that Jesus had a body to start with. Isn't that an amazing thing? God in the flesh. How deep was God's love for us that Jesus inhabited flesh and blood to even be on the earth in the first place? It's a pretty amazing thing, isn't it? So, you know, when we're remembering the body of Christ, obviously what he went through, obviously the fact that he suffered, but the fact that he had a body to start with is a very startling thing, isn't it? And we ought to remember that. Now, uh, it goes on and he says, Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, that's an important verse for a variety of reasons. One of which is, the language that is used in Matthew 26, 28 is exactly the same language that you find in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. Where Peter is telling the folks on Pentecost that they need to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Now here's why that's important. There are a lot of folks in the religious world who try to argue that we're baptized not because our sins are not in order for our sins to be forgiven, but because our sins have already been forgiven. Well, if that's true, then what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 26, verse 28, is this is my blood, which is shed for many because your sins have already been forgiven. Nobody wants Matthew 26, verse 28 to say Jesus died because we were already forgiven. It's very clear that it was necessary for Jesus to die in order for us to be forgiven. And if it was necessary for Jesus to die in order for us to be forgiven, it's necessary for us to be baptized in order for our sins to be forgiven. Okay? That's a very important component of that passage. But in the context here in Matthew 26, the real idea is that the Lord's Supper is a commemoration. It is a memorial of the death of Jesus. Okay? That's the whole point. So, verse 29, he says, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The word kingdom is used there in conjunction with the beginning of the establishment of the church. And there is a relationship that we have with Jesus when we are in Christ that we do not have before we are in Christ. We become brothers and sisters of Christ. And that fellowship that we enjoy uh, is, is a great, great blessing. And then verse 30, and I don't want you to overlook this. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's striking to me. And, and the reason that that's striking to me is because of what traditionally the Jews would have sung. Okay? They had a songbook too, right? What was their songbook? It was the book of Psalms. Traditionally, the Jews during the Passover feast sang the Hallel, which is Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. 
And they sang different portions of those psalms at different portions of the meal. But the last thing they would do when they ended that meal is sing Psalm 118. Now why is that important? Look over at Psalm 118. We're not going to read the whole psalm. But I want you to notice what the psalm says, beginning in verse 21, which would have been just at the very end of their singing before they left to go out to the Mount of Olives. I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now stop right there for just a moment. Did Jesus know what was about to happen when he left that Passover feast? He did, didn't he? He just told the apostles, my betrayer is at hand. They go through with the Passover meal. He institutes the Lord's Supper. They sing the song before they go out to the, to the Mount of Olives. And the song they likely sung was Psalm 118. And the very last thing they said as they're singing that song is a prediction of the rejection of Christ. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It was marvelous in our eyes. And then verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Knowing full well he was about to be rejected, knowing full well he was about to be arrested, to be crucified, to be treated in a terrible way. Jesus saying this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Isn't that powerful? Unbelievable. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we need to know what we're doing. All right, This isn't just about... Um, partaking of a little piece of unleavened bread that tastes like styrofoam now. Thank you, COVID, right? Uh, this, this is not about the, the grape juice. This is about partaking of that unleavened bread so that I can remember that my Lord actually had a body, a tangible body that he really lived, and that he gave that body as a sacrifice that he died. And when I take that fruit of the vine, I'm supposed to remember that the blood that he shed was shed for me. And it's just as powerful as that blood that those Jews smeared across the doorframe of their dwelling so that the destroyer would pass over. So that they could be forgiven. Shed for many for the remission of sins, Jesus said. Very, very important words to consider. Now, quickly, another question that falls in line with this is why do we observe the Lord's Supper? And obviously, Paul is going to spend a good bit of time thinking about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, and he does that in chapter 10, and then he also, uh, probably more familiar to you, does so in chapter 11. 
And I mentioned to you when we first started talking about worship, 1 Corinthians is important because there is really an unbroken context from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 all the way to chapter 16 that has the worship service in mind. Okay? So if we want to know what the first century church looked like when they worshipped, 1 Corinthians is a really good place to go because you see them doing the same things we're doing. They are taking the Lord's Supper. They are... Uh, singing, they are praying, they are preaching, they are giving. All those things are present when the church meets in the first century, and 1 Corinthians shows us that, chapters 10 through 16. So in chapter 10 and verse 16, uh, Paul writes and he says, The cup of blessing which we bless. Now remember, worship is a means of blessing God, right? We talked about one of those New Testament words for worship that means to kiss the hand toward. It's the idea of blessing. Okay, this is a cup of blessing. Cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Which is why we call the, the Lord's Supper communion too. That's a biblical term to use. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So why are we taking the Lord's Supper? Well, according to 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16, we are communing with uh, the blood of Christ communing with the body of Christ. It is the idea of drawing closer to the concept that Jesus really lived. It's the idea of drawing closer to the idea that he died in my place. Okay, It's a remembrance of what he's done for me. Uh, and then in chapter 11, he goes into a, a fuller discussion because there were some abuses of the Lord's Supper. And the Corinthians had really confused the purpose of it. And they had basically... Um, taken that event and turned it into a day-long affair where people could come and eat if they wanted to. And, and the folks that didn't have to work were feasting and the folks that had to work were really suffering. And there was no concern for one another. And Paul says, enough of that. You know, eat in your houses. But when you're coming together to worship, you need to be worshiping. And as he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he says in verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus... On the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So why are we observing the Lord's Supper? Well, we're, we're communing with Christ, and uh, we've seen that, especially in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. And that statement that Jesus talked about drinking it new with you in, in the kingdom would apply there, too. There's the idea of fellowship with Christ, communion with Christ uh, as a result. But in this passage, you get the idea that Paul is saying you're doing this as a way to remember Jesus. And it becomes very important uh, to the concept of how often we do so, right? We'll talk about when we take the Lord's Supper uh, a little later as we go through this list. But I'll tell you, you need a, rem a reminder of what Jesus did for you. And a tangible reminder is a very good thing hold that bread in my hand and it reminds me that Jesus had a physical body. And I drink that 
that fruit of the vine, and I remember that he really did shed his blood. This is not a fairy tale. It's not a story. He really went to the cross. And the blood that he shed was legitimately shed for me, for the remission of sin, so that my sins can be forgiven. And so there really is a very powerful connection there. And it's, it's a tangible reminder of what Jesus has done. In verse 26, 1 Corinthians 11, says, As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're doing what? You're proclaiming the Lord's death. And how long are we supposed to do that? Till he comes. So this is not the sort of thing that you just do one time and you say, Well, I've done that. We've done that already. We're going to take the Lord's Supper till he comes back. And it is a proclamation of his death. It's a proclamation of his death to me, and I need that. But you know what else? It's a, pro it's a proclamation of his death to everybody that happens to be present when we worship, including our children, who when they begin to get old enough, will start asking questions about that sort of thing, right? What's this about? Why are we doing this? What are, you, what are you doing? And it's a wonderful opportunity for us to tell them we are remembering the fact that Jesus really lived and that he really died. And so he had a physical body and he died on the cross. All right, we'll pick up with, with other questions about this next time.